Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, October the 5th, and you're very welcome to this week's politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are joined today by someone who has spent his whole working career, really, uh, considering politics in the broadest and most broad sense of the word. But first as a journalist and then as a hugely successful writer of fiction, his latest novel is set against the backdrop of what is almost certainly the world's oldest continuous electoral process, which is the selection of a new pope by the cardinals of the Catholic Church. Robert Harris, you're very welcome. Oh, nice to see you. Um, our politics listeners might say cardinals, the Vatican, what are we talking about this year? But it's one of the most intense pieces of politics uh, in the world, isn't it? The, the, the papal conclave. Yes, I'd say if you were interested in politics, you can't not be interested in a papal conclave. Um, and for many years, uh, it was unpenetrable, the secrecy that surrounded it, in fact, for centuries. I think it's only in the last um, 40, 50 years that we've begun to get some sense of what actually goes on inside. And in 2005, uh, one of the cardinals who took part in the conclave that elected Pope Benedict, against all rules, kept a diary... Uh, and that was leaked to an Italian religious magazine. Uh, and that, I think, more than anything else, lifted a corner of the veil and allowed one to see the, the politics that goes on behind the closed door of the Sistine Chapel. Because the church itself, uh, to, the, uh, to the annoyance or unhappiness of some of its members, is not a particularly democratic institution in comparison even with, 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 with some other churches. But this is a very democratic vote, you know, winner takes all. What's, what's the process? How do you need to become elected by the, by the, by the curia as a whole? Well, they have a, it's two, you need a two-thirds majority. So the, uh, the maximum number of cardinals who are permitted to vote, you have, there's a cut-off at age of 80. You have to be 80 or below to vote. Um, and uh, 120 are eligible, uh, so you need a majority of 80 plus one if there's a full complement of cardinals. The interesting thing there, if anyone who's interested in politics, is, of course, not so much the 80 figure as the 40 with which you can block the election of a pope. And that's what happened in 2005 when uh, the vote switched to try and block Ratzinger, switched behind a man who actually eventually became Pope Francis. Um, so you check into the Casa Santa Marta if you're one of the electing cardinals. You surrender your laptop and your mobile phone if you have them. Your luggage is scanned. You're shown to your own bedroom or suite. Um, the, the shutters, you discover a welded shut. Uh, it's purely artificial light. Places a sort of almost bunker within uh, the walls of the Vatican. The next day there's a mass and, the, and in the afternoon the first ballot. And the first ballot in the Sistine Chapel normally has as many as 30 or 35 candidates get one vote or two votes um, because it's sort of you vote for your friend people suspect that one or two cardinals even vote for themselves there's no rule against voting no 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 mm. uh, but from that will emerge you know that you 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 um 
you sit in desks in the Sistine Chapel. There's a false floor has been put in uh, a meter off the ground so that and underneath it are jamming devices to stop any electronic uh, transmissions. Uh, you, you, you get issued with a piece of paper. You, it says in Latin at the top, I wish to see as Pope. And underneath, you write a name. You are told to disguise your handwriting. You step out into the aisle of the Sistine, approach the altar, hold up the piece of paper, recite in Latin, I cast my vote for the person who before God, I believe, would make the best pope. You place it on a silver salver, which is then tipped into an urn standing on the altar of the Sistine. After all, uh, well, in my novel, 118 cardinals have voted. Uh, three scrutineers who've been elected by secret ballot step forward uh, and they set up a table and the ballots are counted uh, and the first person, the first cardinal scrutineer reads the ballot and notes down the vote. The second hands it to the second who does the same, who hands it to the third who then reads it out loud and th puts a needle and thread through it. So that in the end, the, after all 118 votes have been counted, they're all on a thread, which is then knotted, and that is then burnt in the, in the stove that produces the black smoke if it's an inconclusive ballot. I should say that then three more cardinals who've been chosen by a secret ballot come up and check everything right, is so in a, order. There's a certain suspicion oh, uh, well, about the process, you, or it's the, attempt it's to like the, suspicion. It's like the Borgias or something. You know, clearly nobody trusted anybody else at all. So there's these incredible layers of secrecy and, then, and checking. And then they go back in a fleet of minibuses to the Casa Santa Marta, if it's the end of the day. And that's where the interest begins, because they know the results have been read out loud. You, you can imagine the Pope's hunch, um, the Cardinal's hunch forward, like people playing bingo, mar marking down the list of who got how many votes. Although those notes are taken off them and burnt immediately as well. So they have to memorize the result. And they go back to the Casa Santa Marta, and that's when they politics begins. They have a communal meal, and the candidates move from one table to another, or they go into bedrooms to canvas votes, or their supporters do, or in corridors. And uh, that is politics up close and personal, and that's really what I like wanted to write and, about. And what would happen there? Let's say, for the sake of argument, I'm a cardinal, and I've I've, I've amassed a few votes in that in that first ballot, which you refer to, you know, seven or eight or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm clearly not going to be a contender for the top job, but I have some supporters. Would there be discussions about, you know? Um, what I might get in return for suggesting that those supporters transfer their allegiance to somebody else? Well, technically, no. And it would probably, in fact, have forbidden under the, under the rules to make bargains uh, and to campaign in that way. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that cardinals know... Ask about the front runner. Ask about other cardinals. Who is he? What's he like? What do you know about him? You know, they're trying to probe and discover where they stand. Is he a man of God? I should say that this is surrounded by prayer, individual prayer by the cardinals on their own in their rooms, in the chapel in the Casa Santa Marta, in, in the Pauline Chapel, the Sistine Chapel. So the whole thing is surrounded by a ritual of prayer. But, but this, so it's sacred, but, but there is also the profane, I think. Uh, I mean, in, in the secret diary, they describe, the unknown cardinal describes the patriarch of Lisbon, who was addicted to cigars, going out into the courtyard, being pursued by <laughs> the campaign managers of various factions <laughs> to try and get his vote. Well, at the end of, yeah, so if you go back to your question, if you've got sort of eight votes, you're, I mean, and uh, we're moving towards the end of the process, uh, 
some of those supporters may make themselves known to you and may ask you who, who you would now think would be the best Holy Father. Uh, you can come through with eight votes and win. I mean, Carl uh, uh, Votila on the first ballot only got about five votes, but ended up getting well over 100 after 11 ballots. Um, so as one by one, the front runner, the front runner often stumbles. Someone emerges, say, with 25, 30 votes, um, and it may be that then there's a coalescing around someone who can top that. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a complicated process, which, for the, from a novelist's point of view, lends itself perfectly to uh, tension and intrigue because, uh, you know, you have these successive ballots. And, uh, it, you know, I hope, I found myself on the edge of my seat as to who would get top. And, of course, the other thing, as, as, as you mentioned earlier, is it's brilliant from a, a thriller or a narrative dynamic point of view because unlike everything else in modern life, there is no Facebook, there is no mobile phones, there is no communication of any sort. And those devices tend to ruin dramatic tension when they're introduced. Yes, absolutely. The, the death of the thriller is uh, Wikipedia and social media, uh, all that gumshoe work which used to provide you with the stuff of a novel and was dramatic. You know, you can now sit at your computer in a few keystrokes and you know, you know everyone's background and what they've done. And no, they are cut off. Uh, it's purely based on face-to-face -face encounters. Um, and I was very um, struck by a novel years ago, I don't know how well it was known in, known in Ireland, by C.P. Snow called The Masters, which was published in 1951, which is the account of an election for the mastership of a Cambridge college in the 1930s. And um, it's, it's a wonderful book about the process of politics politics. They're not politicians, they're academics. Nevertheless, the same manoeuvrings, the same exposure of flaws, the same past jealousies surfacing. Um, you know, it's a wonderful picture of, of political man. And, and these structures, these sort of you know, political structures within which machinations, as you say, take place, people focus a lot, particularly these days, I think, on how influential the actual rules themselves are in the way that the drama plays out. I think, for example, of the drama of the Brexit referendum. Referendums are not particularly common in the United Kingdom. Um, in this country, some people say that our political uh, uh, proportional representation system actually militates against effective government, but equally people say in the United Kingdom that the first-past-the-post system has severe limitations in terms of its representation of the real views of, of, of the people. How, how much do those kinds of processes, do you think, influence the way that these stories unfold? Oh, I think hugely. I mean, the key thing in the um, papal conclave is the two-thirds majority rule. Mm. That does require, in the end, a consensus um, around a candidate. What, um, and you see that develop in the Sistine Chapel between, uh, it's what we in secular politics would call momentum and what they call the action of the Holy Spirit, guiding them towards a, a candidate who gather, gathers more and more votes. So that's important. Um, I think the thing about, you mentioned the Brexit referendum in Britain, the, uh, the extraordinary thing there is that a bare majority was enough. I mean, people, I mean, it was actually, I think, 51.8%. So, you know, there were 16 million people in Britain who did not vote for this. Um, and I think, there, I think as time goes on and the economic buffeting gets greater, the fact that under those rules a simple bare majority was enough is likely to uh, become more of a problem, in, in my view. I think such a big constitutional change should have had at least a kind of 55-45 um, 
rule. Um, and, and also, of course, you're mixing two systems. You're mixing um, the mass vote, what, what is rather derided as the continental system, rather disparagingly uh, and paradoxically in Britain, taking us out of uh, Europe. And uh, that sits ill with the representative system. And the fact remains that, uh, you know, there are f- more than 400 MPs out of 650 were on record as opposing Brexit. But now they're going to be called upon to vote against their consciences and their beliefs. And that's a, that is a dangerous thing. And I think that's likely to bring Parliament into further disrepute. I, I mean, they're hung I, whichever way they do in, it. Indeed, I suppose the people on the, on the Brexit side of the argument would say that that, that that very fact illustrates the disconnect between the, the political establishment or what they might even characterise as the elites on one hand and, and the, the electorate on the other. The, I mean, we've, we have referendums a lot more in Ireland than, than you do in the UK. We did a podcast on this a, a, a while ago and there are, there are two opposing views on referendums. One is that they are the most pure form of democracy because the people get to get to adjudicate on on the issue. Finally, the other is that there's something f- profoundly wrong about a- adopting a plebiscitary approach to to serious legislation or serious political decisions, and that representative democracy, as going back all the way to the Roman Republic, which you you've of course written about, is 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 a better way to deal with great complex issues of state. Yes, I think they are. I'm afraid history shows they're the tools of demagogues. I mean, um, Hitler ruled by a combination of plebiscites and, and orders issued uh, under the Enabling Act without any recourse to any kind of parliamentary chamber. Um, and uh, you mentioned Cicero. I mean, in, in the early 1800s, Cicero's On the Republic was discovered in the Vatican Library, tantalizingly 30, 40 years after the Americans had brought in their constitution. Um, And he advocated a a kind of tripartite um, democracy, a a constitutional monarch, uh, a a lords, as it were, or an assembly, and the people. So three, a tripod with these three sections to it. And uh, he said that one would never overwhelm the other. And specifically, and he went through the dangers of each. And the dangers of the people were, were an untrammeled mob was as frightening as a storm at sea or a raging fire, in his view. Uh, and I think that uh, if you say that this is this now the supreme part of our constitution and overrides parliamentary government and everything else, that's a dangerous precedent. I mean, we start with Brexit. Uh, what might it be next? What populist device might be put to the people? And then MPs are expected to toe the line or what? Be suspended? I mean, you know, uh, I think you t- tamper with your constitution at your peril. The, the, the roots of our own democracies, for the most part, because they vary from country to country, but they are mostly rooted in those Cicero's ideas and those ideas of, of the Roman Republic. But it, it was different in some profound ways as well, clearly even apart from not being purely thoroughly democratic as we'd understand it, but also the the, the Senate and, and some of those systems, the, what, the distinction that we would make between courts and legislatures wasn't really the same, was it? Is that fair to say? That it was a sort of a court as well as a... Well, you were. To consider legal. I mean, the 
Uh, the Roman Republic was an extraordinarily complex and highly democratic system in many ways. I mean, not not in the sense that obviously women were excluded and slaves were excluded and it was biased in favor of the rich. That's certainly true. Your, your vote counted for more if you were wealthy. But, um, you know, the power was shared between two consuls who alternate one month each presiding over the Senate. Um, and uh, you then had the election of the heads of all the courts were elected annually, as well as the people who ran the city and around the aqueducts and the roads and the tribunes who alone could put legislation before the people. And legislation could only be passed by an assembly of the people. But you had a, it's a very complicated system of checks and balances dis, designed to diffuse power. Um, and as long as it worked, uh, Rome functioned uh, pretty well. But the moment they started bringing in special measures, uh, the moment they started um, occupying the forum and ramming through in, by intimidation um, populist measures, the whole thing began to break apart. And uh, I think the lesson of the Roman Republic is that is that constitutions, however ancient and however they well they've worked in the past, uh, they can be subjected to pressure and change. And uh, all over the world, one feels that the democratic institutions we've, we've, we thought were there and permanent and were safe feel under pressure by a kind of um, unbridled uh, populism in a way. And the candidates that are being thrown up are extraordinary. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, putting aside the fact he might conceivably win, that alone is quite extraordinary. Suggests that some sort of change has occurred. What, 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 what is that change? I'm trying to consider that myself. One of the things that occurred to me is that over the last 10 or 20 years, in many democracies, people have um, have, have criticised what they say is a, har- a hollowing out of the parliamentary process of the legislature and a move without any kind of constitutional change, but a move to a more presidential type system. That's been a criticism of the British prime ministership and, and also, of the, uh, also of the way the go- that government works in Ireland. I wonder, was that a precursor to this kind of move towards a sort of strongman politics that we see now? Yes, uh, it may well be the case. Uh, certainly, um, I mean, I've done quite a lot of been research in the 1930s just lately, and if you looked at the Times newspaper, it would give a page, two pages, full pages, to almost verbatim account of what had happened in Parliament. All speeches were reported. Um, that has sort of collapsed now. There's no, doesn't seem to be much parliamentary debate of certainly not of any high quality um so that has gone there's been a shortening of attention span the reduction of politics to sound bites and to um it's very much a game of defense now you know to avoid making a gaffe and saying as little as possible and people have wearied of it and turned away i mean when you look at what's happened in the labor party they have elected a man who is as close to being an unelectable leader as you're ever likely to get by all the rules of politics the most extraordinary thing when you look back at it is there was no one of any stature really to oppose him. That was the trouble. And they all spoke in this strange way as if they'd all come out of some peculiar laboratory. So well, They'd all done the same degree in the same university. Yeah, really, and they'd they? all followed the same pattern. And all of them were scared of answering a straight question. 
you know, um, and that is, I think, a real problem with with democratic politics. How, it's, how did that happen? You know, you look back at the, I mean, I, I don't think I'm being over nostalgic about a golden age or anything, but if you look back at the, the political history, say, of the UK in the 1970s, and you look at figures like Dennis Healy and Michael Foote and Tony Crossland and Barbara Castle, mm. these are figures of, of, of consequence, aren't they? Of yes. Weight. Yes, um, and you know, the, uh, the, there just doesn't seem to be th- figures of that size going into politics, and and power seems to have gone into the media and into the city and uh, into other areas. I think it's a pretty miserable life being a politician, actually. Um, and there, there, are, it's a, it is a, one gets the sense of a vacuum into into which others are now rushing. One of the criticisms of the, the Brexit wing of the of the Tory party was that it was led by figures who were actually, uh, and, and this, this I think was meant as an insult, were really journalists who were sort of lightweight, you know, ca- characters, public figures, comedians like Boris Johnson or Flibber de Bigibbets like yeah. uh, Michael Gove, and that, that they just didn't have, again, the weight, I suppose, to, to take on the issues, which, which they ended up, you know, calling, essentially, I think it's fair to say that if Gove and Johnson hadn't turned against Cameron, it's very likely that the referendum might have gone the other way. Yes, I think this is true. And uh, as speaking as a columnist myself, a former columnist, I'm horrified at the thought of columnists might be entrusted with any serious direction of national policy. I mean, the aim of a columnist uh, is to entertain as much as anything. Uh, and it's short term. And it's certainly not the long term kind of statecraft that you expect of politicians. I mean, another line of um, Cicero's was the very worst form of government was won by clever poets. In fact, he said he would bring b- back the death penalty for clever poets alone who meddled in politics. We should mention that to our president, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I think he saw the phenomenon uh, even 2,000 years ago. So, you know, I, uh, I'm by nature an optimist, um, but I have to say there's a slightly kind of 1930s revisited feel about world politics at the moment. And um, part of the story, I think, is the collapse of the left. I mean, left, the whole basis of socialism, um, by and large, has gone. And, and the intellectuals have become very much separated from, from the ordinary people. Um, and there is a there are votes waiting for right wing populism, for instance. Um, you're seeing it in Germany. You're seeing it in France. You've seen it in Britain. You're seeing it in America. Um, uh, one feels when a new era is struggling to be born. So what what happens then, or how? What is the part of the prospects, if any at all, of of a new coalition of whether you call it the centre or the centre left, you know, emerging in 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 this new dispensation? I was reading with interest. Um, it, it seems that most of Theresa May's speech, uh, which happens later today to the Tory Party conference, has been leaked in advance, which is the the way of these things. And she's very much making a a play, uh, certainly in in the speech, for the idea that she's speaking to those working class communities who voted uh, who voted for Brexit and who are, have been deserting Labour over the last 10 or 15 years. How does Labour or some new iteration of the centre-left win those back? Well, that is one heck of a question. Um, and I think probably um, a lot arises almost in a kind of Newtonian way, uh, action and then reaction. Um, we will now just have to wait and see how the Brexit unfolds. And if there are um, economic 
problems, turmoil, turbulence, they like to call it, um, that could give rise to a new kind of grouping. Um, and, you know, British politics is fractured. And the only way, it seems to me, that anything other than conservatives going to take power will be in a coalition. There will have to be, I mean, there are going to be 50-odd Scottish nationalists who will have to be brought in. There will be a dozen or so liberals. Um, there will be the rump of the Labour Party. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't fall below 200 seats to something like 180. Uh, how, how do you get from that grouping to something that can get the 300, 350 that you'll need to form a government? Um, I think we just have to wait and see. But Theresa May is obviously making a clever, shrewd play for that territory. Um, but we'll wait and see. That means she'll have to deliver on certain things, and uh, they may it may not, they may not be deliverable. You've um, written a thinly veiled uh, novel based on on Tony Blair, who's somebody who you you know or, or certainly knew in the past. Um, how much is he to blame for some of this? Well, I think that um, historians, when we have some perspective on this, will look back and say that the this was this great election winning machine three times winning general elections by good majorities as well. And the whole thing turned out to be nothing, vanished, smoke and mirrors. And there was nothing permanent left behind, no permanent ideology. And I think that the uh, decision to quit politics entirely following the Iraq war decision and then the decision to go off and, and seem so openly to just want to make money, I think discredited a whole section of the Labour Party and it's never really recovered and uh, and historians may look back and, and say that he was a dilettante in the end that he he enjoyed the being Prime Minister and, and then but just sort of forsook his his followers uh, and left them wandering in the desert because the worst to go back to the language of the conclave indeed w uh, without a prophet uh, and that uh, they perished because the worst, the worst insult in the contemporary British Labour Party is the word Blairite, isn't it? Yes, so there's no way that, in my view, a party can come back if it disowns um, 13 years in power. That is just insane, especially as for most people, those 13 years look back now seem to be a kind of golden age of new schools and hospitals. I mean, and the minimum wage and so on, economic growth. There was a, it was a, they were pretty successful governments, in fact, uh, and yet they can hardly be spoken of. They're, they are regarded as uh, the ultimate betrayal. Well, that's crazy. And just to go back to the Catholic Church, one of the things it was very clever about is that you can't disown things that have happened before. You know, they were all part of a continuum, a magisterium. And Cardinal Newman laid out this idea that you could evolve, but you couldn't evolve if you directly contradicted something that had happened before. Uh, and that's quite a shrewd way of proceeding. And any organization that repudiates its most successful leader is in trouble. And finally, can I ask you, I mean, you've written about politicians in, in, in various forms. Another part of contemporary culture, it strikes me, is uh, the default position in, in the public position in relation to politicians is that they are reprehensible human beings who are only out for themselves. And you hear this reiterated again and again in various, uh, in, in various parts of the media for, for the most part. How boomerap do politicians get? Because they're not, in my experience, when you meet them. They are flawed individuals, as, as, as are we all. Why, do they, why are they viewed in such contempt, it seems, these days? 
I don't know. I suppose partly it's a breakdown in deference. Um, it's a breakdown also of the kind of system, class system that we used to have. I mean, in the 1960s, you'd have looked down at Parliament, you'd have seen a lot of officers who'd been fought in the war on the Tory side or men who'd fought in the war on the Labour side, trade unionists, uh, businessmen, you know, it would have been felt more like a national assembly. I think now it's become very much a gathering of uh, uh, specialists who've come up not really actually worked in the outside world. They've only um, worked within politics. I think that's bred a certain contempt. Also, as I say, I think the power and the glamour have leached to the media to some degree. I mean, I'm always amused to watch Have I Got News For You, where they are, the satirical programme on the BBC. You've been on it, haven't you? I've been on it, and uh, I'm a friend of Ian Hislop, who's one of the team captains. But it does amuse me to see all these millionaire satirists <laughs> pillaring, uh, pillaring all these uh, politicians who are earning really a fraction of what they, they do, and yet, and yet holding them up to contempt and ridicule for their venality. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, there's something gone wrong with a society where the satirists are paid much more than those who are, they satirise, and indeed are more respectable, almost more establishment figures. And that's a very strange inversion, I think, and probably not a healthy one. We should leave it there. Robert Harris, thank you very much for joining us. I should say that Robert's book, Conclave, is in all good bookstores now, published by Penguin. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and it's really great for us if any subscribers take a moment to rate or even to review the show. Helps to get it out to a larger audience. Remember also that you can get me on email at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or tweet me at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye, and thanks very much for listening.